0: just stand inside one of the cells is just a very good way to to immerse yourself in in the topic to to get that across to somebody um to make them feel that they're there because when people read a book that's what they want to feel
1: this is cold war conversations if you're new here you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand cold war history accounts do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In this episode, we welcome author Paul Grant, whose excellent Berlin trilogy is set in Berlin during World War II and the Cold War. Before we start, I'd like to say a quick thank you to all our Patreons who are supporting the podcast with their monthly donations, starting from a pound or a dollar just head over to com and click on the support the podcast menu option to learn more. If that's not your cup of tea, then you can also help by leaving a review on iTunes or with your favourite podcast provider. It really helps us get new guests on the show. So back to today's episode, Paul and I talk about the books as well as his inspiration and how he did his research to capture the atmosphere and details of Cold War Berlin. We also discuss the GDR and visiting Berlin. So without further ado, let's join our Cold War conversation with Paul Grant. I'm delighted to today to have Paul Grant on Cold War Conversations, um, who's the author of a a trilogy of books set in Berlin. A couple of them are set during the Cold War period. Welcome to the show, Paul.
0: Thank you very much, Ian. It's great to be
1: here. I have read two of the trilogy and I'm a fan. Can you tell the uh, listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into writing? I'm a historian
0: uh, background, so that's really... Where um, the, the inspiration come from? I studied. I was lucky enough to study history at university um, in Newcastle, and that would have been uh, going back some years now, probably just after the, the the wall fell. So you're talking. I think it was ninety ninety one. And you know, you're looking at the main topics that the, your uh, podcast covers. The Cold War was one of the main topics that we covered on um, looking at. I would say mainly about a geopolitical. Uh, spheres and, and uh, the spheres of influence of, of the Soviet Union, and then also specialised in, in Weimar and Nazi Germany, World War II and, and then the Holocaust. So a lot of coverage of, of the um, of the topics, uh, something to, to sort of bring inspiration and, and to give many ideas um, to, to put into to writing or writing career um, much later in life. Really, it's a real fertile ground with all that um, rich history. Times of real suffering, let's say, in in Europe uh, and uh, a little bit beyond. Uh, so really, that's that, that's the the main crux of it. I would say even at school as well. I mean, from from quite a young age, um, I went to West Germany um, with school. I would say maybe about eighty four, eighty five, something like that. Never got to Berlin at that time, which is a, a real regret. But um, it it was always Interesting and fascinating, this idea of of a of a barrier right down a country, especially one as as let's say as um, sophisticated as Germany at um, at that time, and and also I would say the inspiration from from learning about those things is, is was where I would say it all started to find out about the Berlin Wall. I had also friends um, in the military who served in Berlin, a couple of guys who. Actually, guarded Rudolf Hess uh, at Spandau, and they right. used to tell me all sorts of stories about uh, about that. And, Sounds and like I need to have them on the show, Paul. Well, <laughs> yeah, possibly, possibly. One of the guys slipped into conversation once that he was on the the Galenica Bridge to, to to hand over Russians to um, back to back to the Russians. Mm-hmm. And I said, I mean, immediately I felt, are we talking about spies here? Are we talking about spy swaps? But he said, no, no, that was that was really about when building work was going on in West Berlin. And quite often they'd unearth the bodies of, of uh, Russian soldiers. So that was also where they repatriated uh, the bodies of, of Russian soldiers. There was a hand over there.
1: That's an unknown Cold War story. So I like the sound of that as well. Yep. As far as, let's say, other, other inspirations, I mean,
0: Many of the the, the, non-fiction, the great non-fiction books, which, which, like Anthony Beaver, Stalingrad, Downfall of Berlin, um, Roger Morehouse book, Berlin at War. There's the Frederick Taylor book, um, The Berlin Wall, and the Anne Applebaum books, Google Gulag, and the, the Crushing of Eastern Europe. I think my favourite book, where um, quite a bit of the inspiration came from Caught in the Mousetrap, would be the Ides of August by Curtis Kate, which is, is about basically about the Berlin Wall crisis in 1961, which is a is a wonderful book. I don't see it really uh, recommended so much, but then again, it's I think it's from the 70s, uh, but it's very much along the, the Frederick Taylor style, um, telling the personal stories of people on either side of the wall um, or before the uh, before the city was uh, was divided. So yeah, um, lots of inspirations. Opportunity. Um, I'd been working a lot away from home, uh, travelling, and that provided a lot of long-haul flights. So that provided the opportunity really to start writing. So, with all the, let's say, knowledge and background of um, the history degree, all the reading, uh, that was really where the opportunity to start writing came. So I would say it was uh, something to relax, something to is as, as even a hobby really. I took the opportunity to to um, take a break from permanent work, full-time work, let's say, and, and uh, did some consultancy. And while I was doing that, I was able to, uh, to write the book. So really, I would say focusing with three or four um, big drafts of work, which was completed over, let's say, probably five, six years of, of traveling and working, then was brought together um, in the last two or three years with the books that have been uh, that have been published.
1: Right, and and you self published these, didn't you?
0: That's right. Yeah. Um, so that was something else that I I had to learn very quickly. Um, I did a lot of the, the the publishing through KDP, which was an interesting process in terms yeah. of formatting. So that's um, the Amazon publishing. Edited. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and obviously you're able to do the paperbacks as well and everything on that side. And then the covers, which was also an interesting um, process because once you've spent so much time and effort writing a book, you've got to get the right cover. You've got to get the cover which which um, embodies the spirit of the book. Um, and that's not easy with with... Let's say um, copyrights and everything else in, in terms of, of photographs. So it's it's, um, it's not easy, um, but it was very enjoyable to do it. And, and uh, I've just, like I said, we're just on the third book now. Or the third book's just coming out. So it's uh, it's certainly been a,
1: a fun process. Just going back to the 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 books now. Now the main protagonists with, within the the trilogy are the Schultz family. What can you tell us about? them without giving too much away.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, there are three books, as you've said. Um, so we're covering three time periods. You've got caught, Berlin, Caught in the Mousetrap, which is essentially set around August 1961 and the division of, of Berlin. Um, I would say that is the daughter Eva Schultz's story. She's the main character within that book, whilst obviously other members of the family are there as well. You have Reaping the Whirlwind, or Berlin Reaping the Whirlwind, which is set from, let's say, the end of 42 to basically the end of the war, which which is really, let's say, when the wheels start to come off, hence uh, in Germany, let's say, at least in Berlin, um, which is um, which is hence the title. And that's really Maria's story. That's the mother, with a little bit of Klaus as well, the, the, the father. And then the third one, which is, just published um, this week, which is is Uprising, um, which is set around, obviously, the June 17th, um, 1953 Uprising. Uh, He says Berlin Uprising. Of course, the Uprising was was much wider within Germany than just Berlin, but um, for the the purpose of this uh, trilogy. And that would be Ulrich's, I would say that's Ulrich's story, with, again, a lot of um, Klaus inside the, the father. So you get the the four stories of your if you like of, of Eva the daughter, Ulrich the son, and Maria the mother and Klaus the father, um across the three books. What can we say? Klaus is then the father is part of um von Paula's Sixth Army, um, fighting in Stalingrad. Um I think it's fair to say that he becomes a prisoner of the Russians. I don't think we're giving too much away when we say that. No. And then Maria back in Berlin Very principled woman, um, strong, gets involved with the the resistance circles, Um, I would say mainly around the lack of belief in in the propaganda. So the story specifically around Stalingrad um, that the authorities want to, to peddle, if you like, that every prisoner or let's say every, there were no prisoners and every member of the sixth army was annihilated at Stalingrad. Um, of course, she's also listening to the BBC and other, let's say foreign broadcast, which is illegal at that time, but that's how people built up the story of really what was going on in the war. Yeah. I would say. Um, yeah. From both and, sides.
1: and the, 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 the individual titles of the trilogy, how, how did you arrive at those names? The one that's just been published recently, uprising, obviously set around the uprising, so that's
0: quite um, uh, quite self-explanatory. Looking at the history around the books um, is, is very interesting, and I think that's what probably be interesting for your for your uh, for your listeners. When I look at Caught in the Mousetrap, for example, if if you set if we can set the scene, you've got um, Eric Conacher who's at that stage is the, the head of the, um, uh, the the FDJ, the German youth organization. And he set a task of quite a significant building project, which he's got to do in obviously in very much in, in, in private, in, in um, uh, secret to get all these concrete posts, all the um, um, barbed wire and everything <laughs> into the warehouses around East Berlin without anybody finding out exactly what is being planned Um, there's all the agitation of the border crosses the people crossing from from east berlin into west berlin they force people who are who are living in east berlin and working in west berlin um, first of all to pay their rent in west marks to um, pushing them trying to by interviews by coercion to. get a job in East Berlin. Uh, and these people have been told, you know, in a few months' time or a few weeks' time, you're not going to have a choice in the matter. You're going to have to work in East Berlin. So people start to ask the question, why would that be? Everybody knew to a certain extent something was coming leading up to, to August 61. So a lot of people obviously were leaving um, uh, East Berlin, as people said before they closed the hatch, it seemed to be the the um, one of the sayings of the time. Um, the the refugee centre at Marienfeld, for example, was was um, taken in. I don't remember exactly the figures, but it, it was something like two or three thousand people per day um, in August, and I think they had three or four thousand places there at that time. So it was madly overcrowded. People knew there was something coming, um, and then of course at, at two a.m. On Sunday the 13th of August this was part of the planning um, so that it was a summer time a lot of people from East Berlin would have been on holiday at the lake somewhere in Berlin or elsewhere in in Germany Um, and it was purposely done at this time so that people wouldn't be prepared or ready or able to leave for the West or into West Berlin which of course the, east, the, the, the East-West German border had already been sealed a number of years ago. So the only way to get into West Germany from East Berlin was, was through Berlin. So that was uh, something which clearly, with the number of people um, that were leaving and the quality of people that were leaving in terms of doctors and teachers, uh, the drain on the East German economy was, was phenomenal. So this was the background, if you like, of um of, uh, of Caught in the Mousetrap. Yeah. I, I would just like to, to read one passage, if I could, because it comes from um, Frederick Taylor's book On, on the Berlin Wall, and, it, and this is where the title for, for Caught in the Mousetrap came from. Um, this is something which, which really depicts what was going on, on on the morning of Sunday the 13th of August when the city had just had just been sealed. And it's actually um, it's commenting on um, it's a guy called Robert Lochner who was the um, he was the director of uh, RIAS um, Radio in the American sector, right? And um, so he was going around Berlin. being had been basically a phone call to get out of bed very early, and he, he'd ended up at um, Friedrich, uh, Friedrichstrasse station. So he, this was a, he says that a third trip after dawn took him to Friedrichstrasse Station, normally the last stop on both the main railway and S-Bahn lines, before they trundled over the river Spree into the west. A few hours earlier, the East German Transport Police had suddenly closed the ticket halls and barred all access to trains scheduled for the west. In the tunnels and halls below the embarkation area, Lochner found hundreds of East Germans milling around in bewilderment and growing desperation, as yet unaware of the border closure, they still hoped to catch trains for the West. But most would-be refugees carried suitcase or in a pathetic attempt to disguise their intentions, parcels and boxes tied up with string. Access to the trains was blocked by lines of black-clad transport police, or, or trappers, who stood shoulder-to-shoulder blocking the up steps to the platforms, semi-automatic weapons slung ready for use. Lochner found himself irresistibly reminded of by their uniforms and their arrogance of Hitler's SS, whose unattractive qualities he knew well from pre-war days. As Lochner stood by, watching the miserable scene, he saw an elderly lady gather up her courage and slowly climb the steps until she reached a line of trappers. "'When,' she asked nervously, "'is the next train to West Berlin?' The sneer with which the young representative of the regime greeted her request would stay burned in Lochner's memory. None of that anymore, Grandma. He told her, "You're all sat in a mousetrap now." So that's that's where the title "Caught in the Mousetrap" came from. But, but really depicts the kind of thing that was going on. Um, uh, you know, the stories that people have of, of uh, um, early that morning on, on Sunday, the 13th of August, when you know the city was sealed. I think a lot of people felt it may have just been temporary. Yeah, uh, yeah. It would it would change. It's not going to. It wouldn't um, because it had been done before on a temporary measure. Sometimes the 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 access had been closed on the on the various checkpoints, or not so much checkpoints then, but just areas where they crossed into West Berlin. Um, a lot of people felt it might be temporary, but of course we we knew that, or we know now that there would be. Um, 28 years before, before things changed,
1: and it's interesting because obviously one one of your books is set in in World War II, but you know you can't really separate the Cold War from World War II, and certainly before with the Weimar Republic, because you know that those the experiences that people had during that period shaped East Germany and the the, the later leaders of of East Germany were, were shaped by those experiences. I mean, you've got Milka who killed uh, some policemen, I think, in, in Weimar, yeah. Berlin, and had to flee to the Soviet Union. Honecker mm-hmm. was arrested by the Gestapo um, and 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 held by then. And all those experiences sort of shaped their, their worldview to some degree later on.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and I mean... When you look at Reaping the Whirlwind, I mean, that's why I started Reaping the Whirlwind um, in terms of time when I did the end of 42 was really the, the big turning point. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War
1: that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more.
0: In the war, and then, as you said, many of the East, Ger- or East the, the next, the coming East German leaders were either in Moscow already being trained or were in concentration camps in, in Germany. Yeah, um, as communists, let's say, as uh, already identified as communists and... Uh, Enemies of that that particular regime.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Did you base any of your characters on anybody from you know real real life? Um,
0: I, I wouldn't say. I, I certainly took the names from <laughs> from people quite often that I uh, I worked with or um, came across in my working life because I spent a lot of time in Germany working. So, um, but the characters not. I mean, I would say the characters. I would say certain scenes and the way that people act sometimes were very much taken from my own personal experiences. But to say there's a one individual character that was based on somebody I knew. Yeah, maybe one or two, but but you know, it, it's um, it's a loose. Uh, I would say a loose base you know, on on uh, on people.
1: Yeah because one of the things I really like about the books is that you really seem to get the detail and the the atmosphere of Berlin during those periods obviously I wasn't around in nineteen forty two um or nineteen forty five or nineteen sixty one but the the sense i get and certainly from what i've read you really you know don't put a foot wrong really in 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 the detail and the, the circumstances there. How, how did you get that detail right? How did you do your research? I think it's really about immersing yourself in, in, in the subject
0: just by reading the number of books um, on, on the topic. It, I mean, books, yes, is one thing. The one area that I really enjoy that helps me as a writer is to, to look at the photographs and study the photographs from the time. Because they're fabulous. That they, you're able to look at them and and get an image, and and let's say make a description of that and and bring it to life. So I I think the photographs are as useful as um, you know books like the the Frederick Taylor book, the Anthony Beaver books. I'm just looking at um, Alan Hailstone's book, um, Berlin in the Cold War, with with all the photographs. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: No, I like that that. Capture. I mean,
0: you know. Alan would have been walking around Berlin taking photographs of things and and some of them he may have been thinking I don't really know why I'm I'm taking this photograph but they're so useful to people now. Um, Some of the photographs that he puts up some of the unpublished ones on on Twitter etc. They're quite amazing because obviously nobody's ever going to capture that again. Yeah. Uh, And I wonder how many photographs like that are sitting in in somebody's loft or, or cellar or you know even unpublished, uh, that's not unpublished, but but undeveloped on, on reels of film, um, and God knows what else, because they're so important to to, to record what a city looked like.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And it, I, I agree with his book, it's the ordinariness of some of the photos that make yeah. it more fascinating. You know, people standing at a bus stop and you get detail of what they were carrying their shopping in. Exactly. Yeah. You know, what what they were, you know how they have what they had on their heads and, and yeah lo- loads of 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 detail there
0: propaganda posters things like this you know if if somebody's walking along in east berlin in i don't know 1953 what do they see you know these are the kind of things that are, you know maybe later maybe in the 1961 these are the things that you need to without going into massive detail obviously it's, it's something that's that's subtle because there's a story going on but it's just the, the backdrop to the story and people feel or readers will feel they're there when they have that detail so yeah. that, that's why it's important and I, I think when you talk about inspiration and research the research is important of course um, there are a lot of wonderful wonderful books to read, to, to get that. But to actually go there and just get a sense, I, I realise it's, it's 30, 40, 50 years later, uh, well, more than that, 50, 60 years later now, but to go and have a look at these places, Bernauerstrasse, Straße, um, to walk around there, um, Stalinala, as I would call it, <laughs> you know, to look around these places and and just spend time there, um, that yeah, of course many of them have changed, but some of them have barely changed. Um yeah. so you can get a very good feel for that um just by spending time in the area, going to museums. I mean Ons Schoenhausen was um a very eye-opening visit um in terms of I mean I spent I've spent a lot you know I've been there a few times, spent time with um with guides looking around just spend time there on your own and just have a look inside just stand inside one of the cells and i'm talking about the u-boat i'm talking about the cells from the 50s yeah. um, as well as the, the the more modern cells you'll see on the same sky or or whichever other program um tv program he's just very a very good way to, to immerse yourself in, in the topic, to, to get that across to somebody, um, to make them feel that they're there. Because when people read a book, that, that's what they want to feel.
1: You're right. I mean, Hohen Schoenhausen is very, I mean, I, yeah, that, that won't go away, my memory with that. And particularly being shown around by somebody who was in there as a prisoner, yeah. which a lot of the guides are, you know, for, former inmates there, made it even more, sort of like uh a, amazing is the wrong word but uh impactful um just hearing you know firsthand um, what it was like there. i mean berlin is one of my favorite cities as you may know from my previous ramblings but it, it never ceases to amaze me the new things that you find and as you say walking the ground there is nothing better than that to to actually get a feel and even though it is you know, 20, 30 years since some of these things happened, as long as you move away from the tourist traps, you can still feel a little bit of what, you know, East Berlin and East Germany was like, Um, but you have to hunt for it.
0: Well, you do. I mean, I remember when one of the times I went to, to, to go to Schoenhausen, I asked a taxi driver to take me there and um, he didn't know where it was. He didn't know what it was. Okay, it might be my bad German but trying to explain it to him but but I, he understood what I was telling him but he just didn't know where it was he'd not heard of it and eventually we, we stopped somebody uh, he said I'll take you to the area um, he said it's not a particularly nice area you should be aware of that I was dressed in a suit because I'd taken some time off, off. I was there for a, a conference mm-hmm. as well so it was something I was able to, to 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 fit in while I was there but he said it's not a very nice area and he stopped somebody at the side of the road and said look i'm looking for this uh this pr- prison or, or as they call it memorial um any ideas and it was a lady who was pushing a baby she just said yeah it's just there on the corner and it, it, it turns up out of nowhere there are a few houses around it and then you've got the watchtower on the corner i think it's yeah uh it's gessler and then it's Lichtenauerstrasse on the other side where the 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 homes used to be for the guards, et cetera. So I think that that's one of the things that, that was most surprising um, when I went there and that was the room with, with the x-ray equipment. Um, obviously when you're downstairs, the 50 cells, the 1950 cells, um, you you know that it's, this is physical torture bad conditions, um, waterboarding, all the different things that they used to use. But by this time, the 80s, things were much more sophisticated. But to, to I mean, I'm not, I don't know if they've actually proved that they were, um, um, let's say, passing radiation or using these X-ray machines to to, to give people cancer. Um, I'm not sure they've actually proved that was the case, but... It certainly was very sobering when, when I saw that um, and that was described because I, I know there have been some, uh, let's say, a cluster of rare leukemia cases. And I'm not sure it's been proved that exactly what happened, but it is certainly very sobering to, to see that equipment and, and to understand that somebody could have been sat there totally oblivious to what they were being um, um, subjected to,
1: if yeah. you like. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, did you speak to anybody who'd lived through those periods? I, I think I mean
0: I know a lot of people who lived in East Germany, the people I've spoken to were, you know, are mainly around my age, maybe a little bit older, so we're there, we're talking mainly about the seventies the and eighties. So that it was very difficult to talk first hand to people who'd been there in, in the fifties and sixties. And Mm. Um, I worked with people who lived in East Germany. Some of them talked about their father. One of them, for example, the the father had escaped a week before he'd lived in East East Berlin and and, uh, had escaped a week before um, the city was divided. Um, I I would say for that age or or that time period, you're really relying on, on... other accounts, which is why things like um, Richard Millington's uh, project that he did on, on Twitter with, with and the research that he did with, with people around the uprising are absolutely fantastic for people like me, and it, the timing was, fun, was great because I'd written the book, essentially, but it was good to to be able to uh, test um, uh, the things that I'd written there to check um, to understand people's motivations, what they were thinking, etc. So, um, the Deli Goldust uh, projects like that, because there, you know there are very few people around to be able to speak to about that time period, I would say, uh, directly. Whereas, obviously, you get we get a lot of stories. We hear people talking about um, East Germany that were there in the 80s uh, and the 70s, etc. Uh, which yeah. is all incredibly useful and interesting, but f- for the period that, the, that these books cover, it was uh, it was a bit more difficult.
1: Yeah, yeah. What what was what would you say was the most surprising thing you discovered in your research?
0: Um, as I said, I think the thing that struck me the most was was the pointing in Ernst er- Um with the, with the X-ray machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I found incredibly interesting. Um, and, and talking to the number of German people that I have when I worked there was the people who live, let, let's say, live now. I, I worked predominantly in the western part of Germany at that time and, and what would have been the old West Germany. The people there, the people that I spoke to, had either very little knowledge of Berlin or they didn't seem to care so much about Billing. Let me, let me put it, like, I'll explain it a bit more. When we're talking about a capital city, for example, in in England, my kids and and me, myself, when I was very young, were taken to London and shown the history and made to understand clearly about um, London and, and, and what it means, if you like, the, the, the key sites of attraction, if you like when I spoke to people in Western Germany or the very west part of Germany where I worked, very few of them had done that when they were young in Berlin. Um, there was one person that worked for me actually. They said there was they were going on a course uh, and it would be in Berlin. She was 35. She said to me, I've never been to Berlin and I want to go and see you. And she lived in Germany all her life. She, she was German from West Germany. Um, the rural, let's say rural area or, Rhine, or, or Rhineland and absolutely amaze me with my interest and, and let's say fascination maybe it's more of a um, an outside thing but the fascination with Berlin yet people in, in Germany or Western Germany either seem seemed or, or maybe seem a little bit embarrassed about the past of Berlin and don't don't seem to be that interested I it's a difficult thing for me to understand, but that's what I, that, that's what I found, and I found it in a, in a number of people.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I guess people's concept of what West Berlin is like, because you know, some people's concept is that, oh, God, it's all walled in, it must be really grey, it must yeah. be really... Whereas it was a, a huge green areas and forest mm. were within it, but not the easiest place to get to probably from West Germany either.
0: Well, there's that, of course, um, and that's to say, that's not to say that, for example, um, the German education education system has not done a fantastic job in, in educating their children um, about what happened in the past, because that's one thing that. You know, has clearly been done in Germany, and that's facing up to what's happened in the past, and and uh, and people understand it very well, and, and it's made the country extremely progressive in, in, in the way it deals with things, far more so than the UK, I, I would say.
1: Mm. If I said to you, you know, what is the elevator pitch for this trilogy for people to read it to, to read them? What what would you say in just a you know, couple of sentences?
0: Um, I, I think. Well, you know, they, they say self-praise is no praise. I, I think if you enjoy um, Berlin, if you enjoy stories about the Cold War, if you are interested in World War Two, Stalingrad, what happened in Berlin when the Russians arrived, um, if you're interested in, you know, how Berlin was, um, how the people were affected then I think you would be interested in these books. Outside the history, obviously there's a story there with the people, um, with the families. There's a hell of a lot of suffering, of course, um, with the bombing, with the Russians arriving in in, um, in Berlin, with the POWs that the Russians um, took, and denied were there for many years even these germans were (laughs) part of that if you like part of that cover up Mm. so there's a lot there's a big story there uh, to tell so if you're interested in those things i i I think that you'd be interested in the books yeah
1: yeah and I'd, i'd agree with you with that i mean i i've i've read two of the trilogy and i did thoroughly enjoy them um a few years, uh, probably about five years ago, I used to only really read non-fiction, and then started reading fiction and really got into it because there's some really rich fiction books which do give you a load more insight into historical events. Um, and I would say the, the, these books that you you've written do do that as well. So even if there's people listening who are hardcore non-fiction people, I would. Um, encourage you to give uh, Paul's books a whirl?
0: Well, it's kind of you to say that. I, I mean, but I'm a non-fiction person. I mean, very much. Like I said, that some of the books that that tell these stories, like the, the Beaver book, uh, Anthony Beaver, Stalingrad, The the, the Downfall of Berlin, um, and the Frederick Taylor book on the Berlin Wall. You know, the, these book, the books, they are Applebound books, you know, uh, Gulag and, and the crushing of Eastern Europe, they are fantastic. Uh, and they're such a, um, a brilliant uh, source of information. Let's say primary stories, um, how people were affected. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Non-fiction is very much there. And it's difficult if, if somebody doesn't get the history right. You, you, it can make you put a book down very quickly. Mm. Likewise, if the book's not written well, um, and there are mistakes all over it. Then it's also another. You lose confidence in, in what you're reading. So it's uh, it, it, it works from, from both sides.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now you, you know this is a trilogy. It's it feels when I got to the end of Uprising that there's there should be another book there. Are there any plans to turn this into a what would it be called a quadrilogy or something? I don't know. <laughs> Um, I've already written a fourth book. Exclusive on Cold
0: War Conversations. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The fourth book is not part of the family series in the sense that um, the main characters are not family members, yet they are involved in the book, which is set in... um, Berlin, obviously, uh, you'd be surprised to hear, um, in 1962. So it's roughly nine months after the division of the city. And if you can imagine, um, the city is still uh, in turmoil very much. It's on the brink, in fact, because the the standoff at um, with the tanks at Friedrichstrasse just happened. Um, or october sixty one that was, but but we're a few months after that. So on the border things are very techy. Uh, often there are riots from of West Berliners throwing missiles over the walls, um, tear gas being fired from both sides, um, people blowing ho- holes in the wall um, with plastic explosive. Um the Berlin Police Force allegedly involved somewhere along the line um, tunnels being dug escapes going on almost daily um, so that was the background of the fourth book
1: Right, well you've got me on tenterhooks now we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll have to have you back to, to hear about that I, I think
0: there'd be people from that time period that I would, you know, the Cold War, um, some of the main protagonists at that time, that I would like to talk to, to ask them questions. When you think about the people that were involved, like Mielke um, and Ulbricht, especially when Ulbricht's saying things like, um, we have no intention to build a wall. Yeah. You'd really love to know what was going through their minds you can understand why let's say they felt it needed to be done in terms of, of the the brain drain from from east germany yeah. etc
1: and and Albrecht is an interesting character because i always think of that photo of him sharing a platform with uh, joseph goebbels pre war Uh, this is during Weimar and I think they're on the platform because they're both advocating a transport strike or something like that yeah yeah
0: well that was the communists and and the Nazis together yeah I mean obviously
1: obviously Goebbels was the uh, was their man in Berlin
0: if you like before the war uh, yeah
1: so okay you've you've got Milka you've got Albrecht Uh, if if I said you could have a third who would that be? um I think I'd like to to get the other viewpoint i
0: think I think I'd like to know what people like j f k were thinking mm-hmm. you know Macmillan to a certain extent, but but mainly j f k when these things happened, like for example, the wall or the city was divided did how much of a tip off did they have that things were going to happen from the Russians? I mean, you hear this statement that the wall is better than a war you hear that or you heard that a lot at that time and it comes out in a lot of the research um, but I'd, I'd go a, a little bit further on to things like when people are, you know, are being shot at at the wall and you've got Peter Fechter the killing of Peter Fechter when, when he's lying at the, at the bottom of the wall uh, the foot of the wall and just on the East German side asking for help screaming for help why or, or what could have been done. Do you th- yeah, that's why I would be asking them, do you not feel that, quite honestly, in that situation, do you really feel that the East Germans would have opened fire if, if let's say, two or three troops went onto the other side, uh, the, the border guards removed Fechter, um, with helicopter cover, all the things that the, the Americans had in that area at that time? Um, without it causing a major incident.
1: yeah. Especially
0: with all the other things that were going on at that time. There were many things going on daily. Um, it would have just been another incident in, in a long, long list. Um, especially as Willy Brandt had said something like, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like the, the police were there to keep order in West Berlin not to protect the wall. So he'd given a very clear guideline between 61 and 62 that they were giving covering fire to escapees, for example. Yeah. So those kind of questions, I I think it is very easy for us now to say that nothing would have happened. But I think those are the questions that that I would like to to, to ask. Um, It's it's, it's a very, very interesting time. And I think, the the, the 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 let's say people were t- or the American State Department were turning against the escapes. They were turning against the um, the way that Willie Brandt was working with the West Berlin police, for example. There was almost a uh, an attempt to calm things down and leave things as they were, leave things, the, the new status quo as it was.
1: Yeah, no, it, it, exactly, and that's the impression I get is that the you know the Western allies felt it was a stabilising factor, mm. um, and just calmed things down. Obviously, there was the tank confrontation that you mentioned in October '61, um, but it did delineate the zones more clearly and did sort of cool things down in the main.
0: I just wonder what what Lucius Clay would have done um, had he had he been around there when Peter Fechter was lying at the bottom of the wall. I wonder what would have happened. You know, these kind of small things that, that could change history almost, given what had happened in October sixty one.
1: Yeah, yeah. But and then you think what that could have potentially triggered. Exactly. In terms <laughs> of reaction as well. Um you know. So yeah, What about Milka? What would you have asked him? Uh, um he's he's obviously got a very cold colourful history before
0: he even becomes um um head of the MFS. I mean, if you go back to um as you said, I think it was nineteen thirty-one when he, he killed the policeman, um or allegedly let's say. Um Was wanted for the murder of a policeman at that time, Um, and then he disappeared. So I'd like—I would ask him where he went, (laughs) what he was getting up to. I think there were rumors that he turned up in Spain. I think at that time the Civil War, Um, but clearly a survivor in, um, uh, or let's say, linked to a regime, or uh, you know, the late thirties. Moscow was uh, a difficult place to survive especially when you're in some kind of position of uh, authority uh, so he he obviously had something and they saw something that the Russians saw something in him the Soviets saw something in him to be able to survive so long as he did um, so when he got to um, uh, back to Berlin whatever, 46, 47 and started to, to work his way up the ladder of the state security, um, he had a lot of skills necessary and probably a lot of supporters in in Moscow. Would you be interested to to know what he really got up to?
1: Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. I think what what always frustrates me is I often see some really good books or what apparently look like really good books in German, and my German's just not up to it. Um, that I'd love to have an English translation of which sort of detail, you know, more about, you know, the, the lives of some of these people. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly fascinating. And,
0: and this is obviously what inspires um, inspires people to write and, and to uh, um, sometimes gives them a bit of artistic license. Um, it, it's a bit like in Uprising when the real key or the trigger to, to uprising or, or even the things that happened afterwards was the death of, of Stalin. Um, there were potential reforms were mooted by, um, Moscow pushed to, to Berlin to, to say, let's, um, we should be thinking about reforming. We should be looking at more, um, uh, say, um, commercial goods, not, um, Heavy industry, whereas Ulbricht was all down his Stalinist reforms of, uh, um, let's say, deep, um, deep reforms, which were very unpopular with the people. And from that, there was obviously quite a serious um, power battle going on at the top of uh, the Politburo in in, um, in both Moscow and uh, and Berlin. And it's just interesting to know how far that went uh, and that's what really uprising touches on the potential um, with a little bit of artistic license a potential Russian or hardline involvement in some of the um, uh, let's say protests even though clearly there was a people's protest um, really about the work norms initially it became something much wider and something much more threatening to um, the East German government at that time. So, yeah, interesting to look at these these things, which which maybe maybe happened, maybe didn't happen on the on the uh, on the, um, the key things like the uprising in nineteen fifty three, for example.
1: Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um- so uh your your books are are widely available I think it's safe to say I will put links on the show notes to them but if you go on any book book site and search for Paul Grant Uprising I think the trilogy should come up there um, where can people find you online if they wish to uh, converse further? Apart from the fantastic Cold War Conversations Facebook, apart from that, of course, yeah,
0: you can find me on Facebook. So you, if you just, I mean, again, if you if you just put Paul Grant Uprising or Paul Grant Caught in the Mousetrap, you'll find you'll find things there. And as far as if you put those into Facebook, it will also. Um, in some weeks, I've tried to do that. I'm also online um which is paulgrant author.com. So you can find me on there as well. You'll get get all the links and also on Goodreads. Yeah. You can ask questions on Goodreads and everything else. So yeah. i please I'll, do if you've got any questions I'm happy to uh to answer them.
1: Right. I will post all those links um in the show notes. I was I was looking at new topics for for, for, for new books
0: um whether to to stay in the sixties or the seventies. I was I'm researching at the moment um, to look for something or, or have some quite good ideas for the 1980s because obviously it's an, an era when I was alive um, and, if you like, a child of the Cold War. So I, I think the 1980s would probably be the next book after that. Um, bearing in mind, I would have been about 10 or 11 years old when things like the Threads film were coming out. Um, I remember being stood in the queue in the fish and chip shop and one thing that struck me, that was really when I first started thinking about the Cold War, the radio was on, they were interviewing a lady from Greenham Common at that time, which was, you know, it, it, the, the protests at that time were, were very prevalent. Yeah, And the, I remember it now, I can I can really remember. She said, I wouldn't bring a child into the world at the moment um, because I think this threat is something. I, I couldn't forgive myself if I brought a child into the world at this moment in time. So you're talking 83, 84. Mm. And that is the one thing that stuck with me about the Cold War resonated and, and made me start to take an interest or you know it would now we know it was around the time of Abel Archer and all these other things that you've um you've covered on on the podcast.
1: It's funny you say that because I, I saw a Twitter today from the Hat Green Nuclear Bunker and they asked their visitors to fill out cards about yeah. their Cold War experience. And somebody had filled out a card and it said, I was a teacher in the 1980s and we deliberately didn't have children because of the fear of what the world would be like in a nuclear war. So, you know, it's not, you know, and that's probably, you know, hundreds, thousands of people probably, you know, thought thought the same way. And certainly I I was a child of the 80s and it was always, you know, there that, you know, that, that fear of, the sirens going off and four minutes (laughs) what and and, you know what preparation did we have in the UK for that or or really anywhere I mean it was uh, unbelievable yeah
0: yeah no absolutely thanks for asking me thanks for spending time to do it I realize that you must spend a hell of a long time doing these things and in your own time and it's uh, it really is a a wonderful resource listening to some of these things are uh, absolutely fascinating like you said it's 30 seconds of these things that, that can trigger something uh, something quite wonderful to to work with
1: yeah oh well, well well i appreciate that well that's it for today's episode don't forget to visit the show notes at coldwarconversations.com where there's details of the books we mentioned as well as links to the berlin trilogy If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners like yourselves continue the Cold War conversation. Just search Cold War Conversations in Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod and Instagram at Cold War Conversations. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye